All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here tonight to hear a message from Mr. Cook. As you will be with him as he brings the message, and I ask that you will help us to follow it and grow closer to you. It's his name. Amen. How's it going, everybody? I'm glad to be here and have a chance to share with you guys in Dan's absence while they're uh, out getting rejuvenated, some much-needed time away. Um, and so what Dan asked me to do tonight was to spend some time sharing with you about a mission trip that I took last month to Cuba. Um, Cuba's been in the news quite a bit lately. In fact, the timing of our trip was kind of incredible. Uh, we were there. We left about three days before President Obama got there. So, you know, and that was the first time a U.S. president had been to Cuba in like almost 90 years. So it was a little bit like stepping into history. And uh, I've got some pictures from there, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about when I tell you that going to Cuba is a little bit like being in Back to the Future. Uh, it's like you've stepped back in time when you go there. Um, so what I was going to do tonight was kind of give you a, a brief geography and history lesson about Cuba to just kind of lay the groundwork, talk about why we went there. It was myself, my wife, my son uh, as part of a team, um, what we were doing there, and then uh, some of the experiences we had, some of the things we had to be careful of while we, there, we, while we were there, and then some of the lessons that I took away from going there, for me personally, plus some that I think are applicable for the church in the United States as well as for you individually. So uh, Cuba is an island that sits in the Caribbean about 90 to 100 miles off the coast of Florida. If you could drive it in a car like from Key West to Cuba, it would be like driving from here to Daytona Beach. It's, it's that close. And yet, for my entire life, it's been so isolated, it was as if it was on the other side of the world. And that's because it was illegal for us to go there. And so what happened is in the, in the 50s, uh, Cuba had this president named Batista, and he'd been in power off and on for about 20 years, and he had grown increasingly dictatorial, increasingly power-hungry, and increasingly violent, especially towards anyone who opposed him. But Cuba at that time had a Republican form of government, in theory, like ours. And so the United States basically supported the guy in, in spite of his efforts or in spite of his issues. And part of that was because the U.S. had a lot of businesses in Cuba, and we were making a lot of money off of Cuba. But the people of Cuba were growing tired of this guy. So a rebellion formed, and the rebellion was led by Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, uh, Che Guevara, and... Camillo, Sanfuegas, and some other guys. And so it took a while, but after six or seven years, the rebellion had grown enough in size and strength that they ran this guy off. He fled 
from Cuba. And so at that point, you know, they, they refer to it as the revolution. At that point, they took power in Cuba. And Fidel Castro was the political leader of the rebellion, so he essentially became the president of Cuba. The United States did not like this because Castro and all of his followers were socialists. So let me explain what that is by explaining some of the things that they did. Uh, they took all the businesses. They basically would go into every business and say, this is ours now. Uh, if, if it was a U.S.-owned business, they would go in and say, this belongs to us now, go home. Uh, they went into people's homes and said, get out. We'll decide who lives here. Um, they told people what they would earn. So they, they, they instituted wage controls because in their mind, they were trying to help the poor, so they were going to redistribute all the money. So that meant they wanted, they were going to dictate across the board who earned how much money. And so, as you can imagine, uh, that drove some people away. Uh, it, it meant that like the most highly educated, the most highly skilled people in Cuba left because the government had just taken their business or just taken their home and just told them, this is how much money you're going to earn from now on. So in a sense, most of the best that Cuba had left because they were going to have the government dictate to them how they could live. That's socialism. In a nutshell, socialism is the government deciding what's best for all of the population. This is relevant because you have a presidential candidate right now who calls himself a democratic socialist. So when you hear a guy say, I'm a socialist, we know we have evidence 90 miles off of our coast how that works, okay? So the other thing that happened about that time was um, that the United States didn't like was that Castro started getting friendly with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was our arch enemy. They were uh, very public, very upfront about their goal to export their form of communism all over the world. And so Castro buddied up with the Soviet Union, announced that Cuba was a communist nation. And there's, you know, socialism and communism are kind of two peas in a pod. There's some subtle differences. Um, one of the differences is that as a, communi a communist nation, your government's official policy is that there is no God. That's your official policy. So they shut down all the churches. They were no longer allowed to assemble together and worship. They were locked up, closed down, because uh, there is no such thing as God in a communist nation. And when people start to assemble together to worship, as far as they're concerned, that's a mob. That's a, that's a mob that is a threat to the government. So they just closed down all the churches. And at that time... Whether it was true or not, there were rumors that Cuba was going to start sending children to Russia to get indoctrinated in communist philosophy. So parents started just 
putting their kids on planes and sending them out, um, mostly to the states. And if they were lucky, they had somebody here they already knew, a family member or a friend, but most of those kids ended up in foster care. But parents, in a panic, were just getting their kids on planes and getting them out of there. So as Castro was locking down and tightening the screws, people were getting out while they still had the chance. So that's basically at the time that the United States broke off diplomatic relations with Cuba and said, you know, we're not having anything to do with you anymore. Plus, they imposed an embargo on Cuba, which basically meant it was illegal for Americans to go there and it was illegal for Americans to do any business with Cuba. It was illegal for anything that was made in the United States to be sold to Cuba. So this imposed uh, quite a hardship on Cuba because most of what they got came from the United States. So the Soviet Union kind of filled the void for a while. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s, all that money dried up. And so their poverty became quite harsh. So... Um, so why would I want to go to a country like that where for since the 60s you know they, they've had uh, very limited freedom of speech very limited freedom of religion they do not have the civil rights that we have and where the, the government has intentionally tried to suppress the gospel well, that is kind of why I wanted to go. Probably about two years ago is when the Lord started kind of working on me, and I developed an interest in going on a missions trip to Cuba because, to be honest, until then I didn't even know I could. Um, but I found out that you could get a religious visa to Cuba uh, as long as um, you convinced them that you were coming there to serve the community. You couldn't call it a missions trip. You don't use the word missions when you go to Cuba. But if you convinced them that you were coming to serve the community, they would grant you a religious visa for a short period of time and you could come there. So it was probably just about two years ago that I found out we could do this and I became very interested in going. And then it's been since then that the United States uh, began to initiate normalizing relations with Cuba. And so the whole appeal for me was to go into a country where for, the la for my entire life, the government has basically been telling its people there is no God and we won't let you get together and worship and has done everything in its power to crush any kind of faith in Jesus Christ. So I wanted that challenge. I wanted to go there. If, if God is getting ready to kick that door open, I wanted to be on the ground floor. I want to be part of it. I want to be at, I want to be the edge of the sword that cuts that open so that the gospel can flourish in Cuba. So about a year ago is when we began making definitive plans to go and so like I said given that it was about two years be be between the time I started getting interested and the time that I went 
to go right at the very moment in history when things are beginning to change in Cuba was pretty awesome, okay? To know that God is arranging things and you are being allowed to participate in something that literally might change an entire country. So that's why I wanted to go. So what we were, the, the I don't want to call it a cover because that makes me, makes me sound like I'm some kind of secret agent, but the, what, you, what the reasoning is, they have a church. I went through a, an organization called Orphan's Heart. Orphan's Heart is part of the Florida Baptist Children's Homes. And so they have ministries in multiple countries. They find partners that are local, and they work with those ministries long-term, trying to help. And, and, you know, a lot of it's reaching out to the, to the kids, to the needy. And so depending on the country, what you do is different. Like I went to the Dominican Republic and spent a week building houses. So what I did in the Dominican Republic was totally different from what I did in Cuba. But what we were doing in Cuba to get in was partnering with a church who had been selected by the Cuban government for this project where they were trying to feed uh, the poorest of the poor. So this church was located in Old Havana. And Cindy, if you want to bring up the first picture. So this is in Havana. And this, this is the church right here. All right, so it's in the middle of these, uh, the street where all of these are either homes where people live. Some of them are shops, like across the street was a meat market. Um, one right down in here somewhere is a school. So if you're just walking down the street, there's not like, other than this, there's not like signs telling you what's what. All of these buildings are well over 100 years old. So this building had been reconfigured. Uh, it, it goes kind of deep back in there, and they reconfigured it into a church. In Cuba, uh, if you are a pastor, you have to live at your church. You cannot, there is no, this is my home and this is my church. The church is your home. So like if we were in Cuba, this is where Mike would live, okay? So the sanctuary was kind of downstairs, and then on the upstairs was a residential area. So that's where we slept. We had a room, one for the men, one for the women with bunk beds. And then at the end of that hallway on that floor was where the pastor and his family lived. Um, if you want to go to the next picture, just to kind of give you an idea as to what the neighborhood looks like, you've got these narrow streets. There's not like, let's go out and play in the yard. There's no uh, lawns, okay? There may be elsewhere. We can't figure out how they decide who's going to live in a house versus who's going to live in one of these units. Um, you can go to the next picture. Um, so each one of these on these levels is where generally somebody lives. <clears throat> and so you might have one family living here and a different family living here. Right across the street from the church <clears throat> was a, a lady, and we just, we just called her Cigarette Lady. 
because every day she was probably 70-something years old, and she lived in a one-room place. I mean, she'd open up the door, you'd see her bed, you'd see her dresser, you'd see the little door where her bathroom was, that's where she lived. And every day she would come out and sit by the gate of the church and for hours just sit there bumming cigarettes off of people walking by. That was her daily existence. Um, the next picture is just kind of, you know, we, we never figured out how they washed their clothes, but we knew how they were drying their clothes because they were all hung out on clotheslines out on their balconies and stuff. So this is, this is where we were ministering. This is where we stayed for a week. It was right in the middle of Old Havana. Um, you go to the next picture, and just the next kind of series of pictures is just stuff to show you how old this place is. And why I tell you it's kind of like being in Back to the Future. Uh, this is a fort that was built about the same time as the fort in St. Augustine. So this was on one side of the bay. That, that gate right there was like the original city wall, and it dates back to sometime in the 1500s. The next picture is on the uh, other side of the bay, this castle um, that's about the same age. The next picture, this, is like, this used to be the governor's palace. So it's got that courtyard in there, and it dates back to the 1800s. <clears throat> and there's like nothing in it now because uh, the current president of Cuba is Raul Castro. Fidel Castro is like 90. He's been sick for a long time. Nobody is really certain where he's at. But his brother's president now. And so we asked, where does he live? And they have several houses, which we find amusing for a socialistic government. But he literally moved from house to house every day for safety reasons. So this building, which was the governor's palace, is nothing. <laughs> There's nothing. Nobody lives there. Nobody's using it. It's just sitting there. You, and if you're into architecture at all, this is the place to go, man, because you see all these buildings with all these detailed uh, columns and, and artwork. Uh, the next picture, look at all these crosses. So at one time, Cuba was primarily Catholic, okay? So they did have believers. Um, they may not have been evangelical believers like us, but they had all these churches. None of these are in use because the churches are closed. Most churches in Cuba are in homes. So at the most, they might be open for you to go in and look around and say, oh, isn't this nice, okay? That's, but or they might have been used, they might now be used for some other government function, but they're not being used. Nobody's going to these churches to worship God. All right, uh, the next picture, uh, they've got plazas all over the place, um, and some of them are in decent shape, like you can actually see somebody's been trying to paint this one. This church goes back to the 1700s, but people live in these buildings all around these plazas. There's like several, several of these, and I'll, I'll tell you a story later about what happened in one of these plazas. All right, the next picture, I could have brought two dozen pictures of the cars, 
If you know anything about Havana, you've probably heard about the cars. So when I say it's like being in Back to the Future, that's what I mean. When you're riding around in Havana, it feels like you're riding in a classic car parade. So when the United States said, we're done with you, Cuba, and we're not going to, you know, we put this embargo on Cuba, which meant not only could they not buy any more cars, they couldn't get the parts to the cars. So what Cubans did was they figured out, well, first of all, Russia would give them some parts, which obviously were not made for American vehicles, but the Cubans would figure out how to make those parts work to keep their cars running. Then when the Soviet Union died, they would figure out how to take parts from other engines and how to adapt them to these cars' engines. Like a lot, a lot of these cars are running off of Volkswagen parts, all right? Some of them are immaculate, and then some of them look like they're about 50 years old. So if you want to go to the next one, I mean, like, I'd walk down the street practically salivating because I'd see these cars and I would think, oh, this would be so awesome. So the next, car, next picture, um, you know, you just keep seeing these cars. And here's, here's um, sort of one of the sad things about what's happening. So the United States is trying to normalize things with Cuba right now, which sounds like a good thing. But one of the things that everybody agrees is going to happen is in about four to five years, these cars are going to be gone. And the reason is because Americans are going to go in there and buy them. They're going to go in there and say, I'll give you $10,000, I'll give you $20,000, whatever. And it'll be below market value, but it'll be more money than any of these people have ever seen in their life. Uh, you'll understand what I mean by that in just a few minutes when I tell you about this one guy, but it felt like we were among the last people to go to Cuba who are going to see Cuba the way it's been for the last 50 years. Because once Americans go in there with their money, these cars are going to be gone. All right, um, next picture. All right, we'll stop there. Um, you see a lot of these types of this stuff around, um, I mean, even if you don't know Spanish, you know what that means. The revolution is invincible. So you'll see some propaganda. I don't, it probably wasn't as much as I was really expecting to see. Uh, the next picture, you'll see uh, Viva Cuba Libre, which just means long live a free Cuba. Well, you're not free is what I wanted to say. You're anything but free. But to them, because they've been able to sustain themselves without the United States, they take pride in that. They take pride in the fact that, ha-ha, we don't need you guys, okay? Even though they're poor as all get out. Um, they take this pride in, no, in being able to say, we survived without the United States. Uh, next picture. You don't see a lot of Fidel around, but this was like at a fire station. So you'll see his picture somewhere, um, sort of, he's just this icon. And so every once in a while, you'll see like a little, uh, you'll see graffiti written on buildings that will say Viva Fidel. 
Uh, the next picture, this is the guy they really like. His name's Che Guevara. Che Guevara was like the, they call him the moral leader of the revolution. And the moral leader of the revolution murdered and tortured um, hundreds of opponents. And so this is the guy, this is, as you can see, about a 10-story building or so. So it's just this huge mural of him and another guy in the next picture. You know, they've got this whole plaza area, and this is where Castro would set up and make these huge speeches. Uh, they'd have these political rallies. This is where they have, like, May Day parades where they would have all the military vehicles coming through in a parade, and Castro would stand there and give his blessing. But I've seen pictures where this place is just packed. You can't squeeze another body in there, and they're all there to give glory to Castro, okay? All right, um, so that, that's kind of what Cuba is like. So the, the things that I learned that I think are important to share with you guys from this trip, the, the first lesson I learned was that God does not need my help. Um, and this ties right along with what Mike has been preaching for the last few weeks on Sunday. So having just described Cuba, and, and I haven't even told you about some of the, like, um, we, we were going to play wiffle ball with the kids. So we took, all, we took this equipment with us to play wiffle ball because they love baseball there. And so we were told, you can't do it. You cannot, you cannot go outside and do anything with the kids. And we were, like, confused about this. And then we finally found out that the reason is because, as you saw from the pictures, the way the neighborhood is, they said, if you go outside and start up a wiffle ball game, you're going to attract a crowd which was kind of the point, okay? So they said, you're going to attract a crowd of kids, and when you attract the crowd, you're going to attract the police. And we don't want their attention any more than is absolutely necessary. So we could not even organize anything with the kids outside. Everything that we did with the kids had to be inside the church. Um, you can't walk down the street and... Talk about Jesus. It's illegal. Uh, you can't strike up a conversation. You can't go to one of those plazas and like start talking to people about Jesus. Uh, you will go to jail. Um, there was another group that was there at the same time that we were. It was a group of guys that played football for Wheaton College. There was like 12 or so of them. And they were there on a different trip, but we just happened to be coordinating through the same church. So... Um, I was talking to them one night. We were going over some things, and they had been there for a few days before we got there. And they said one night they went to one of those plazas, and, and we walked around at night all the time and never felt anything but safe, never felt any threat or risk at all. And they love Americans. I mean, like, they knew somehow we were Americans and not Europeans, and we'd be walking by, and they'd be like, America! You know, so they, we never felt anything but safe. But they went to a plaza one night, and there was a crowd, 
gathered in the plaza, and they saw some guy handing stuff out. They're not exactly sure what he was passing out. But while they were there, the Cuban police showed up, grabbed the guy by the arms, threw him in the police car, and drove off. And one of the Cubans standing there turned to them and said, he'll probably never be seen again. So it still goes on. So if I had decided that I was going to be bold, you know, I'll show you I'll be like the apostles. You know, I'm, I'm going to obey God rather than man. So I'm going to go to this plaza and I'm going to start preaching the gospel. What would have happened is they would have come and grabbed me. They would have detained me for some amount of time. And then they would have sent me home because they're, they're not looking for trouble with America. So they would have detained me, and then they would have sent me home. But then they would have said, where was this guy staying? Where did this guy get his visa from? What church was this guy working with? And they would have arrested that pastor and his wife, and they would have shut down that church. So I would have come back to my nice, comfy existence in Yulee while those people paid the price for my arrogance. So, so you had to be careful about what you did there. They told us before we ever left, Cuba plants spies in their churches. So don't get into conversations about politics. Watch what you say. If anybody starts to initiate a conversation with you about what you think about the Cuban government, blah, 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 just shut it down. So it is still a, a tricky business to go there representing the Lord, all right? Having said all of that, my expectation of going to Cuba was that there was going to, that people were going to be low-key, uh, quiet about their faith, probably biblically somewhat ignorant because of the, the uh, difficulty in being able to share the word, that is not what I found. The Sunday that we were there, uh, <clears throat> they, they asked us to do Sunday school with the kids, so we did Sunday school with the kids, and then we went upstairs to the church, and we walked into the church, and I've been to church in the last 13 months in the Dominican Republic and India, so I kind of had this idea in my head as to what it was going to be like but we walked into that church they had a praise band and they were loud so we sat down and then they start singing oceans and i'm like how do they even know this song and so then after that they start singing mighty to save and i mean they're not singing like me i i don't sing I basically move my lips because for me to sing out loud is not good. So these people, though, are just letting it rip. And so, and they are worshiping the Lord, man. They are not going through the motions. They've got the words up on a board, and it, it's in Spanish, so I have no idea how to pronounce these words, but we're going to sing anyway. So. It was unbelievable. So after that, they have a pastor who preached. And I only know maybe 20% of what he said. But he was preaching strong. And after that service, we had like 
uh, a few of us had lunch with him, and he spoke some English. So we were talking, and he said he completely blew all of my assumptions out of the water. He said, no, in Cuba right now we have over a thousand evangelical Bible-centered churches in operation. He said, we even have a convention so that we're working with each other. We have seminaries. We have a church planning strategy, and we have evangelism training going on. Now, keep in mind, the evangelism training is illegal. They're not allowed to do that, but they're still training people in how to go around sharing the gospel with other people, knowing this might get me in jail or worse. So it totally, and so when I got back to the States, I started doing some research, and I found out that when you factor in the size of our countries, Cuba is kicking our tail when it comes to getting the gospel out. They are growing at a faster rate. They are making more disciples than we are in the Bible Belt. In this communist nation where for the last five decades the government has basically pounding their fist into them, the gospel is flourishing. God didn't need my help. He didn't need Americans to show up to show him how to do it. He's been working the whole time. He's just given me the privilege of having a little teeny tiny part of it. The second lesson I learned was, well, I got to tell you about Jonathan. Jonathan was like the, the main, our main contact person. He was like the children's coordinator for this church. So he helped coordinate us getting there. He helped coordinate all of the activities that we did. He doesn't get paid anything for it. He, the work that he does, all, however many hours he spends doing it, he gets paid nothing for it. He has a full-time job as a pharmacist. So he works full-time as a pharmacist, and then he comes and does all this work at the church. And he gets paid $30 a month. That's what he makes to be a pharmacist. He gets to raise a family. He gets paid $30 a month. That's socialism at work. So the next time you hear somebody saying they want to vote for Bernie Sanders, just remember the pharmacist who makes $30 a month to raise his family on. And so you get kind of convicted when you're around these people because you realize these people are doing so much with so little and we're doing so little with so much. And there's like no way we're not going to be held accountable for this. There's no way we're getting off the hook. I mean, I'm just picturing heaven. God's talking to these people from Cuba and China about what they managed, and he's going to turn to the Americans, and he's going to say, what was your problem? And then the third thing, if you want to go to the next picture, I think I had one picture left. Um, this girl, this is Daniela, this is Maria, this is Trisha. Trisha was part of our team, so was Maria. Daniela is, is a girl that we are now sponsoring. We found out that through secret channels, it sounds so mysterious, but 
they can't put any of this anywhere on the internet where anybody in the Cuban government would know this is going on. But we are sponsoring this girl, which means we're providing her with her food, her clothes, her education. And that may sound like a lot of money, but when you just heard that the pharmacist makes $30 a month to raise his family, it's not a lot of money that was giving. This, Maria, is Cuban. She was a Peter Pan child. When she was nine years old, her parents put her on a plane and flew her to the United States. This was her first visit back to Cuba since then. So she basically did a lot of the translating for us. So quickly, I just wanted to share, we had this lesson in middle school in February out of Jeremiah chapter 29. And so when I was studying for the lesson for the middle schoolers, God basically poked me in the ribs and said, you need to share this when you go to Cuba. The verse in chapter 29, verse 11, that was part of the lesson, says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So that was like the verse that we were supposed to be teaching on. But I read the whole thing to see what's going on around the verse. And the whole passage has to do with when, uh, after decades of rebellion, uh, the army of Babylon went into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and took a bunch of people captive, took them back to Babylon hostage. So they were in exile. So in 29 verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's skip down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now remember, this was for a middle school lesson a month before I went to Cuba. So I had part of what I did was we did some workshops, some training for the workers at this church. As I'm reading those words to them, it dawns on me that the person who's translating those words into Spanish to them is an exile, that she has been in exile from her homeland for 55 years, that this is her first visit back, and she is coming there to bring the gospel to these people. You could see visibly all of these Cubans make the connection. You could see everybody see the parallel to what, what God was telling the people in Babylon to what their situation has been. And you, you could visibly see 
them getting choked up. Like after we were done, like every single one of them wanted to come up and grab my hand. And I had no idea what they were saying, but they were thanking me from what I'm told for giving them hope about what's getting ready to happen there. They felt like God had specifically sent us there to give them the message, this is coming to an end. It's almost over. Your freedom is almost here. I'm getting ready to restore all of your fortunes. I'm getting ready to bring you back out of exile. So I just have a few minutes left before we have to wrap this up. Quickly. What I came back, one of the things I came back from was I'm fairly disturbed about what's happening in our country. Uh, when you have arguments going on about whether we should allow men to use the same restrooms and showers as women, and we actually have to have a debate about this, we actually have, are having legal fights about this, then you have to conclude America has lost its mind. Okay? Uh, so we've got a presidential election going on that is unlike anything that's ever happened in my lifetime. Like, I literally don't know what I'm doing in November. I know a couple of things I'm not doing. <laughs> I'm not voting for Hillary. I'm not voting for Trump. The reasons why, I'm not going to get into here. It's irrelevant. So right now, I don't know what I'm doing. Going to Cuba, God basically rang my bell and said, stop worrying about it. I'm, I've, you just went to a communist country that the gospel's been shut down for five decades, and what did you see? You saw Christians who are getting it done better than you are. I'm in control, Cook. I don't need your help. And if no matter who gets elected president, no matter what stupid laws get passed, no matter how bad it looks, I'm still running the show so stop worrying about that stuff and focus on what I told you to do which is to make disciples I strongly encourage you to go on a foreign missions trip as soon as you can while you're young if God provides you with the means and he provides you with the opportunity do it because it will change your perspective. You will come back to America and you will see things very differently. So if you get the chance and you have the means to do it, go. Watch what God does when you go. And then this is the last thing I'm going to say. Basically piggybacking on what we just read in Jeremiah. Especially some of you guys are seniors and you're so close to graduation you can taste it. So you're thinking about what's next, the next steps. Here's what I'm going to challenge all of you to do. I'm going to challenge you to pray and ask God to interfere with your life. Disrupt your plans. Ask God, step in and completely interfere with my life. In that passage in Jeremiah, he goes on to tell them, I brought this disaster on you. 
He takes credit for it. says, I made this happen. This disaster, I made this happen. He was making it happen to bring these people back because they had been in such rebellion that he had to do something to save them. He completely disrupted their life, completely interfered with everything. Coming from somebody, and we don't have time for me to go into this, coming from somebody who God totally interfered with my life, completely disrupted everything. I can tell you it's the best thing that ever happened. And so I'm challenging you to start praying to God. Whatever I've had planned from here on out, whatever I thought I was going to do with my life, whatever I thought I was going to do tomorrow, whatever I thought my future held for me, Interfere, God. Step in and blow it up. And you do with my life what you want to do with my life. Because I now know that what that will end up being is far, far superior to whatever it is that you're planning now. He has plans for you the same way that he had plans for Israel, the same way that he has plans for Cuba. This does not just apply to foreign countries. It applies to you. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Father, that you've given us a chance to, to see these things and uh, that you are willing to open our eyes and show us where you know, the assumptions that we make about things are completely false. And we put our trust in ourselves and we forget about how big you are. And so I pray for these young people that they will let you work in their life, even if it means it completely alters everything that they've been dreaming about or planning for, that you would do great things in their life, that you would line them up according to your will. We pray for the people of Cuba that you would protect them and keep them safe, especially the pastors and their wives and those who are trying to live faithfully for you and spread your word. We pray for freedom in Cuba. We pray for the door to be opened wide for the gospel. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.